but they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. I got baptized at uh, Lake Minnetonka. Uh, I hit a couple backflips. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. My swag was having no swag. All right, everyone, and welcome back to another installment here of the Minnesota Sports Podcast. It is the 27th of September here, and I know we haven't posted in a while. But uh, we've been going through some phases, been going through kind of a redo a little bit here. And um, pleased to announce that we are back. We are going to try and be back more regularly. And we are going to be trying to post almost every day, almost as much as possible. We are just going to try and give you as much content as we can. So stay on the lookout. We are trying to do this more than once a week. So we really hope that uh, with the effort, the extra effort we're putting in, that we hope that you guys keep listening. Because I've heard feedback from a few of you guys, and I just really... Really enjoy the feedback that we've gotten uh, through doing this podcast. So I really hope that you guys keep listening. I hope it grows. I hope you guys share it. I hope you do all that good stuff um, because it really does help this podcast. And I we really want to see it do well. It's been fun to do over the last year, and I, I want to keep going, and I really, really want to grow this. So I hope you guys can uh, join in with me here as well as we try and get this thing going. But let's dive in. We have a lot of Minnesota sports to go on here, and it seemed like the Minnesota Vikings were dead in the rights. I was expecting them to fully lose this game, go 0-3 with Cleveland next week, potentially go 0-4. The Zimmer era done, Kirk gone, everything cleared out, and all that got pushed away just at least for a week. We can at least take that away for a week because the Vikings came out with a very, very strong showing against the Seattle Seahawks yesterday. And when I say strong, I mean, that was the most dominant of an offensive performance I've seen from the Vikings in quite some time. And I don't necessarily mean in the points they've been able to put up because they put up more points last week. But just the way that they were able to physically impose what they wanted to do on offense. They wanted to run the ball, they ran the ball. They wanted to pass the ball short, they could do that. They didn't necessarily take too many deep shots yesterday, but they didn't really have to because the medium-range plays were there all game. Normally, the reason you take a deep shot is because you feel like everything is clogged up in the front, so you want to take a deep shot to kind of uh, spread the defense out a little bit, and they were able to just succeed by doing medium-range yardage. Anytime it felt like they needed a play, they got one. Third downs, they were like, what? They only had one or two the entire game where they didn't convert on third down. I think they had like 10 third down conversions yesterday. They were one of the worst teams in the league. I think they said that they were 30th yesterday in terms of third down conversions. And that's exactly what you need. When you're playing a team like Russell Wilson, I know they're not as good as advertised, especially on the defensive side of things. But when you can't convert on third downs, you can't win. And they converted on just about every third down they needed to. Realistically, they all but one they were able to convert on. And it was just impressive to see everything go their way yesterday. Uh, because right away, it didn't look like it. They were down 17-7, and you thought, here we go again. The defense can't stop anybody. The offense just won't be able to keep up. Not only did the offense keep up, the offense led the way. And we're going to get to that in a second here. But first... I just want to talk about how much this season is saved because of that. Zimmer will at least have job security through at least the first half of the season, barring an epic collapse. It feels a little bit like last season, but kind of in a different way because the teams that the Vikings lost to in the first handful of weeks of the season were not 
as uh, last season, the teams the Vikings lost to early on were better than the ones they lost to this season. But the Vikings' first win, which is against the Seahawks, was a lot better than the first one last year against Houston. So they already started off on the right foot with getting their first win of the season. Seattle will finish the season with a winning record. And that's something that the Vikings just haven't been able to do is beat teams with winning records. I believe the stat is they have like one more win than the Jets when it comes to beating teams with winning records. So they were able to do that. That's impressive. And just the way that they did it. Kirk Cousins, man, and that's going to be into our stock up, stock down here because the Vikings beat Russell Wilson for the first time ever. Zimmer beats the Seahawks for the first time ever. And uh, it was just a really good game all around. Exercising some demons a little bit there were the Vikings. But they saved their season, and they're able to keep it on the right track. Because if the Vikings want to make anything of a season, they're going to have to be 3-3 three and three by the bye week. At least. 3-3 three and three you can work something with. And I think that they really can. Now they got to play Cleveland, and uh, looking on the way that their schedule is going, they have Cleveland, Detroit, at Carolina bye week. So the next three games, you can realistically go two and one. Now, how that order goes, I don't know. But if you're three and three at the bye week with a 17 playoff format in a division besides the Packers, that is very much up for the taking. And even then, maybe the Packers are a little bit vulnerable. There's still plenty of chance to not just be a team that squeaks in on a seven seed, but to be a team that can realistically win double digit games and get in. Now, your schedule gets a lot harder in the middle part of the stretch. But if you can at least get to 3-3 three and three by the bye week, then you have Cowboys, Ravens, Chargers, Packers. That's 49ers. That's really the meat of your schedule. But uh, if you can go to 3-3, three and three, you at least put yourself in a good position. You don't bury yourself early in the season, which is what they're, they did with the first two weeks. But now they have a chance to kind of save themselves a little bit, kind of like they did in 2020. I think if you're going to equivalent, put an equivalent to this season, it's not like 2016. It's not like 2013. It's not like 2010. It's more like 2020, a team with a lot of question marks coming in, hoping to be playoff contenders, falling flat in the first couple weeks, but still playing very winnable games, losing based on their own fault. And kind of where you said they kind of have a last gasp to save themselves last season. They couldn't finish it off because their defense was so bad this year. The defense is better, although I don't know by how met by how big a metric, but they are better. All right, so that brings us into our stock up, stock down conversation here. And uh, the stock up, I'm going to go Kirk Cousins. He has been balling out. And that's going to get me into a conversation about Kirk Cousins in a little bit. But let's just talk about Kirk Cousins, the game he had. 30 of 38, 323 yards, three touchdowns. He averaged over 10 yards per completion, almost 11 yards of completion. The dude balled out. Best game of his career, potentially just in how efficient he was and how made no mistakes, just game ball goes to Kirk Cousins on that one. You can make the case for Alexander Madison, who had 26 rushing attempts for 112 yards. And don't forget in the passing game, Madison had eight catches or six catches for 60 yards. So he also balled out as well, but we're going to give it to Kirk because man, Kirk has been playing some of the best of his career and we're going to get to him more in a second, but let's get to the other things here. Stock down. Uh, Rashad Breland, he has been awful this season. He has not been good. He's been no bueno, uh, so far. And I know it's early and I know it's more of an indictment on the defense as a whole, but the, he's been getting picked on by every single team. The Bengals, he got picked on the Cardinals. He got picked on the first quarter. He was getting picked on by the Seahawks left and right. And I have no idea why 
they decided to stop targeting Brashad Breland, but he's not been good this season. That doesn't mean he can't be good for the rest of the way, but he has struggled and it's going. And the reason that he isn't playing or the reason that Dantzler isn't playing over, and we'll talk about that in a second, but Breland has not been playing good this season. Every time you see him on the TV, he's getting picked on in the passing game or he's missing tackles. He has not been good this season. And you thought when you signed him that that was a savvy veteran signing. But I mean, there was a reason why he hadn't had a team up until the summer. All right. Stock up again. The offensive line, they've been playing really well the last two weeks. I mean, Kirk has been sacked, I think, once each game over the last two weeks. He's Kirk's been playing well because he's had time to throw the ball. The offensive line has been thought of more as a traditionally run-blocking team, and Dalvin Cook had some good runs last week. Alexander Madison obviously had over 100 yards rushing yesterday. The offensive line has been playing about as well as I've seen them play. Garrett Bradbury looks to be taking that step up in year three, which is kind of what was expected for centers. They usually take that jump in year three. He's starting to do that. He's playing very well. Great effort for uh, the offensive line, Garrett Bradbury, Brian O'Neill, Rashad Hill. And Rashad Hill has been relatively quiet, you know, whenever offensive linemen are like this. The less you hear about their names, the better. The less you're wondering what Rashad Hill is doing on a play, the better. And I haven't heard Rashad Hill's name. He's been playing well. Same with Bradbury and same with just the unit as a whole. Obviously, you'd like to see Darisaw work his way in a little bit, but... Right now, Hill is holding down the fort. Now, when the Vikings play better teams later on in the season, we'll have to see. But for now, uh, offensive line, they've been playing well. Stock up. Stock down. We are going to go a couple of defenders here. Anthony Barr and Cam Dantzler for two different reasons. Anthony Barr has been hurt. He hasn't been able to play this season. The Vikings thought he was going to be able to play last, uh, yesterday, and he wasn't able to. And it kind of brings into those questions. He's got that phantom injury. Nobody knows what it is. Nobody knows how he did it. Nobody, kind of like the Daniel Hunter thing. The Vikings have just downplayed it, downplayed it, downplayed it. And you can do that until he keeps missing games. He's missed the first month of the season. And it hasn't worked out for him so far. He hasn't been able to get his way back in. It hasn't worked out for the Vikings when it comes to uh, trying to keep it under wraps. He's one of their best defenders. Nick Vigil has done okay. But... Anthony Barr and Eric Kendricks together are amazing, and when they're not apart, the Vikings defense takes a step down. Keep in mind, Anthony Barr, also the defensive play caller for the team, he's something that he's done really well uh, in his previous years with the Vikings. So that's another thing to keep in mind there is Anthony Barr's impact. If he keeps missing games, they've been able to escape it a little bit, but keep in mind the defense hasn't looked that great, and having one of your highest paid defenders in there would certainly help with Anthony Barr. And Cam Dantzler, I mean, he showed promise last year. He kind of got in Mike Zimmer's doghouse a little bit, and he has not responded well, deleting tweets, kind of vaguely subtweeting his situation, his growing unhappiness with Mike Zimmer. Mike Zimmer said in his presser today that he's going to have to have a conversation with Dantzler about it, not going to want to be in the room for that one. Um, but Dantzler just hasn't been on the field that much. Zimmer made the comment during training camp that he's going to have to learn how to play special teams. I don't think that sat well with him, but you're a second-year guy, and you didn't play well last year, and the times you did play well, you were hurt. So you're not dependable. Of course they're going to get veterans. Of course the veterans are going to play over you, unless you really think you've outplayed them that much. I know Zimmer has a habit of leaning towards the rookies, but it's still, still he's got to, he's got to outplay the veterans. And Dantzler hasn't been able to stay healthy. He hasn't been able to overcome that. Chris Boyd is playing over him. 
So stock down for Dantzler, somebody who showed promise but is just kind of a little frustrated. And he's frustrated. I'm sure the Vikings are frustrated, but it's been frustrating for his development that he hasn't been able to do more um, with the situation he was given last year and this year to really kind of grow in that corner role. And it is a little unfair because corners typically don't grow as fast as other positions, but still, uh, it's been rough sledding for Cam Dantzler. All right, our last stock up here is Clint Kubiak. He called a phenomenal game yesterday. Again, week one, terrible. He had a, he was terrible at calling plays, but week two, much improved. Week three, almost perfect. And the way that they did things, the way that they were able to dissect the Seahawks defense, which by the way, is not good anymore. The Legion of Boom has been gone for a long time, but this is nothing like the teams that Russ was winning playoff games with um, early in his career. And Clint Kubiak tore him apart. Clint Kubiak has stepped right into this. He's been doing well. Him and Kirk Cousins seem to work very well together. Obviously, Clint spent the last two years as the quarterback's coach, and Kevin Stefanski spent time as QB's coach before getting offensive coordinator, and he had success with Cousins. So there's clearly some rapport there, but Clint Kubiak has just done well. He's just been able to make it work. He's been able to call plays like doing it up in the box. Remember, there was that controversy in training camp that was kind of a non-controversy that he switched halfway through and people thought maybe it meant he didn't know what he was doing. And he just wanted to get a feel for both. Likes calling it up in the box. Works for me. Vikings have scored 30-plus points in two of their three games this season, and that's been part of the quarterback, but it's been also part of the offensive coordinator putting them in positions. We're going to get to the how the Vikings should approach an offense just a little bit here. But first, let's talk about Kirk Cousins and the Kirk stands. Kirk lovers, Kirk fans, whatever you want to call them. I call them Kirk stands because I'm on Twitter and I think Twitter is real life. But uh, the Kirk stands need to chill a little bit, guys. You need to chill. I see people on Twitter going, where are all the, where are all the Kirk haters at now? And where is all these people that didn't believe in Kirk? And Kirk is the best. And how can you not believe in Kirk? You guys, there is plenty of reason to be skeptical on Kirk. There's also plenty of reason to like Kirk. He's a very polarizing quarterback. He really is. And to pretend that, oh my gosh, how come you don't like him the way I like him? That's that's dumb. He's playing the best football of his career, though. Kirk Cousins is, which is why they're excited. And why they're turning, you know, why they're coming after people who doubted him. Sure, I can see that a little bit. But let's not pretend that Kirk has always played this way. Kirk is a very hot and cold quarterback, and right now he's on a hot stretch and potentially one of the best hot stretches of his career. He has not thrown an interception yet this season. He's thrown 11 touchdowns, I believe, in three games. He is on fire. He really is. This is the best I've seen Kirk Cousins play, at least in a Vikings uniform, and I would venture to say better than when he was in Washington. But he's playing the best football of his career. But remember, the hot and cold stretches have always been a thing. Kirk started out cold last season. They got into the hole, and then Kirk got hot. They won a bunch of games, and then he got cold again. It's the hot and cold nature of Kirk Cousins. It's why he's been such a frustrating. It's why he's been such a polarizing figure is because of the hot and cold stretches. So he's finally playing up to the level of his contract. When he gets, when Kirk Cousins is at his peak, and I've said before, Kirk is a quarterback of peaks and valleys, but when he is at his peak, he's worth the contract. I'll say it. He is. The problem is, is I want to see it for a consistent season. If you would play like this, not to this exact level, but even just a slight step down through most of the season, he would be better. If he could avoid the the 
the very valleys, like the very, very lows, he would be a easy top eight quarterback in this league. The problem is, is when he gets low, he looks like he's never played quarterback. He looks like nervous. He looks like he's discombobulated and all that kind of stuff. So Kirk does play well. He has the capability to play like a top eight quarterback. Nobody's disputing that he can't reach that level, but it's how long can he reach that level and how often does he do it? But right now, Kirk is playing to the level of his contract. He's been fun to whip the ball around the field. It's been fun to see him kind of take his own in this offense. They've talked about the leadership capabilities. And, you know, a lot of people are going to point to the vaccine stuff, whatever. Back with the vaccine stuff broke out. I have never been a big thing that that was going to completely mess up the team. I was just going to wait for them for it to come back and bite him sometime, you know, during the season or God forbid during the playoffs. Um, and it could still happen, but until it does, it hasn't been an issue, and I never expected it to be once he got past kind of the initial shock and awe part of it. But, I mean, it's he's been playing well. I mean, Kirk Cousins has been playing to the level of his, the level of his contract, and it's been fun to see. And so this is what I mean. I have a tweet pulled up here with uh, the Kirk Cousins uh, stance, and people are like, just to be clear, the real Vikings fans on here know who the Kirk haters are or were, you can't hide. And it's like, okay, nobody's hiding. Like, it's, these people just take it way too seriously, I think, with the Kirk Cousins hate. Just because you have critiques of Kirk Cousins doesn't mean you hate Kirk Cousins. But I digress. I could talk about that one for a whole podcast. But because Kirk Cousins is playing so well, because the offense is hot right now, you need to lean into that if you're Mike Zimmer. I know Mike Zimmer is a defensive-minded head coach. I know he loves him, the defense. I know he wants to build it through running the ball and playing great defense, controlling the clock, all that good stuff. But the way Kirk Cousins is playing, the way that Cook and Madison are running, the way Jefferson, Thielen, K.J. Osborne, the way that they're all playing on offense, you need to switch gears. Bill Belichick was a successful head coach in the height of the Patriots because he knew when to game plan he knew when to be a running team. He knew when to be a passing team. He knew when to play the short game. He morphed his game plan to what he needs it to be and where his team was at at a certain point in the season. The Vikings are a pass-heavy team that can score a lot of points because their defense can't win games for them. You need to lean into that if you're the Minnesota Vikings. Embrace it. Become an offensive-minded pass-first team. It's not in your nature. You don't have to do it for the whole season, but keep riding that hot hand until the wheels fall off. That's that's really my thing. That is really my uh, kind of lesson throughout this first few weeks of the season is that they've been playing so well. Don't don't stop. Don't think that you have to go to becoming an offensive or to becoming a defensive-minded team. Because the defense will come eventually, but the thing about signing a bunch of mercenary players is that they haven't played together. This Vikings defense hasn't had a lot of time to play together. The 2017 defense, they played together for years. They started every game together. Everything clicked because they had all this time. They're still trying to learn how to play with each other. Mike Zimmer and the coaching staff, they're still learning how to best coach these guys, how to best utilize their skill sets. I know we had a whole month of training camp, but it still doesn't mean that the Vikings know exactly who all these players are, what they can do. It's a lot, and they're going to have to just wait a little bit 
before they can really embrace the defense. And that's kind of okay the way the offense has been playing. It's almost perfect. The offense has been playing out of their minds right now. Lean into that while Zimmer figures out how to best coach this defense when the playoffs roll around. That defense is at the level you want it. The defense, it'll probably get there. I'm not as confident as I was earlier uh, about a month ago, but they still have a chance to turn things around because they just haven't had a lot of time to play together yet. And the more they do, the better they're going to get. They're going to get better as the season goes on. How much better, I don't know, but they can't get any worse than they are right now. So the Vikings need to embrace being an offensive-minded team. That is the thing, because this defense feels like it's the bend-don't-break defense from last year, and it's all fine and dandy until you find a defense that's going to snap, or an offense that's going to snap your bend-don't-break defense in half. So the door is open to turn this thing around. The Vikings need to lean into being more of an offensive-minded team, especially with Kevin Stefanski coming to town and the Browns. Stefanski's going to want to win. It's going to be a chess match between Zimmer and Stefanski. It's going to be fun to see the offense, uh, both teams' offense and defense out there, but the Vikings need to lean into that offense. All right, let's move on now here to the Twins. So the Twins have been losing. Uh, the season's just kind of winding down. We really don't have much in terms of their on-field thing. So let's just talk quickly about Justin Morneau here today. Morneau got put into the Twins Hall of Fame over the weekend, and it kind of made me think a little bit back on his career. I have a piece coming up on it for Zone Coverage tomorrow if you want to check that out. But Morneau could have been a Hall of Famer. The more I think about it, I kind of forgot about him for a little bit, but now that he's back with Bally Sports doing play or color commentary, now that he kind of had his weekend to shine, it really made me think that Justin Morneau could have and should have been a Hall of Famer. And it's mainly through no fault of his own. But it's just, I keep thinking back to that 2010 season. I remember I watched every game that 2010 season or followed every single game. I was locked in on the Twins that season. Justin Morneau had a war of five. He was five whole wins above replacement in the first half of the 2010 season. Now keep in mind, war is a cumulative stat. So the more games you play, the higher your score is likely to be. If you play a full season, your war is going to be higher than if you played half a season. But Justin Morneau in 2010 had a run, had a war that was almost a whole run higher, almost a whole win higher, I should say, than his 2006 season where he won the MVP. Morneau, if he even just, he doesn't have to keep on the same breakneck pace, but even if he just doesn't fall off a cliff, there's a good chance Justin Morneau wins the MVP that season. Justin Morneau gets two MVPs, probably gets a giant contract extension. Morneau probably stays a twin for life at that point and doesn't get traded like he did at the uh, during the 2013 season. But it all came down to the injuries. It came down to that it came down to the head injury. It came down to the concussions. It came down to his head getting slammed into a knee, trying to break up a double play in Toronto. And he was just never the same. And that's not his fault. Uh, it, it's just how it worked out. He just couldn't overcome the concussion issues. And then, of course, the timing, because the Twins were going through the rebuild. Um, and it just didn't make sense to keep him. But keep in mind, Justin Morneau had a good, I believe it was 2014 season. Uh, he was in the home run derby in uh, Minneapolis when the Twins hosted the All-Star game that year. He got some MVP votes in the National League in 2014. 
he found a way to kind of salvage himself. Now, granted, he was playing at Coors, but, I mean, Morneau is still a good enough hitter. And it was frustrating because if Morneau doesn't have those injuries, keep in mind, Morneau had a back injury that missed him the 2009 playoffs, September and the playoffs. They lost. Morneau got hit in the head with, an, with a knee. Out for the re- second half of the 2010 season, missed the playoffs. And that meant that Morneau hadn't played a playoff game. I don't think he played any with Colorado. He played some with Pittsburgh, but didn't play any with Colorado. But the Morneau's last playoff game in a Twins uniform was 2006. He played, well, what do you think about 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. He played six and a half seasons in a Twins uniform. Didn't make the playoffs after that, or at least wasn't on the field when the Twins were in the playoffs. And it's just so frustrating when you think of Morno's career that he could have been so much better and he didn't get a chance in those playoffs, especially because before those injuries, Morno was a gamer. He played all 163 games in 2008. He played a lot of games, even when he kind of had that little reprieve in Colorado. He was playing over 140 games consistently. He was a guy who had a chance. He was so close. If he just doesn't get that knee to the head, I think Justin Morneau is in the Hall of Fame. He was an Iron Man. He was this close to getting his number hung up in the rafters at Target Field, and it was frustrating that now when you look back, he had a very nice career. He was a great player. He's one of the best in the Twins era, but it's just frustrating that he wasn't able to play well enough to get to that level to where his number could have been retired, where he could have been a Hall of Fame conversation, because he certainly was on the path to do that before the head injury in 2010. All right, let's keep it going here with some Minnesota Wild coverage, and Kaprizov finally signs his contract. It only took him long enough, but Kaprizov finally signed a deal. It's five years, but based on the way I've kind of been hearing from reports, and I am no legal analyst whatsoever, but uh, basically sounds like the contract is uh, is basically three years, um, but it's kind of disguised as a five-year deal. Um, it kind of it kind of depends, but for now, it's a five-year, $45 million contract with a $9 million average annual value, um, and again, he will carry a $9 million cap hit that's the largest in franchise history. And the deal finally got done, uh, everything's taken care of, and now they can just start playing hockey. And they play their first preseason game over the weekend, um, that doesn't really matter, but it's just good to have Kaprizov back in skating, he shouldn't take too much time to get acclimated and to get ready and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so the Wild get their franchise centerpiece back, which is huge. And another thing that's going to be huge for this season, they are very old on the defensive side of the ice. They were trying to replace Suter. They're replacing Parisi. They're replacing all these other guys that they lost. And now they're just kind of trying to figure it out. They signed a bunch of kind of one-year veteran guys to try and piece it together. And the contracts through Parisi and Suter are still going to suck. And they're going to suck for years. But it's a necessary evil to try and move this franchise forward. So Boldy and Rossi, Matt Boldy, Marco Rossi, the team's two top prospects, I think they're going to get significant ice time this season. And I think that's important because because of those contracts and trying to get out of them, you're and with the younger players kind of coming in, you're realistically about a couple years away from truly competing for a cup, I think. 
I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope they're competing earlier. But I think two to five years before – I think two years, three years probably realistically. But I'll go five to where they're kind of in the smack dab middle of that window. But in a couple years, they're really going to be cup contenders once they start to push through the crap that is those contracts and they finally start to get out of them and can kind of manipulate the cap a little bit to get out of it. But Boldy and Rossi are going to play. They're going to get that experience. They're going to get time playing with Kaprizov. And that's huge for this franchise to get them kind of working. Uh, so the future is bright for the Wild. Uh, Gurren as the GM has been doing great. Um, I don't know how this season is going to go specifically, but I think no matter what they do this season, as long as Boldy, Rossi, Kaprizov, and kind of that young core start to come together, I think it's a win. I don't care how you do in the playoffs. I don't care how you do after that point, but pretty darn good if you're the Minnesota Wild at this point. And now talking about the links here, they need to abolish the single elimination playoff format in the WNBA. They lost 89 to 76 at the target center last night. They're the better team, but they weren't last night. And in a single game elimination, that's all it takes. Nefesa Collier collapsed. But the the links will be back, but that's not the discussion. The discussion is why the WNBA is using a single-game format. The only, te- the only sport that uses single-game elimination is football, and that's because they have to. Why you don't do just even a best-of-three game series? I know they do it later in the playoffs. Why are you doing single elimination right now? This is ridiculous. The links were a three-seed in the in the WNBA. How is... Whatever. The W... They need to fix that. That's unacceptable. And yeah, the Lynx played bad. The Lynx lost. They lost in the rules. I'm not saying that they got cheated. I'm not saying that, that. I'm saying that league needs to adapt and move forward and adopt at least just a smaller series. At least give them a chance to prove it again. Now, maybe a three-game series is too small, but man, they can't do single elimination. That just It just opens the door for weird things like that to happen. Now, Chicago is a good team, and... They have pieces, they're just inconsistent, and they just played well enough to beat the Lynx last night. But they'll be back, they have the good infrastructure in place. Uh, The team that does not have a good infrastructure in place at the current moment is the Minnesota Timberwolves, everybody's favorite NBA team. Uh, If it wasn't for the Lynx, basketball in the state would just be abysmal. Alright, anyway, uh, so Gerson Rosas is fired. Um, That's what happens when you uh, fool around in the company, Inc., and, uh, yeah, he is fired. Apparently he was caught on tape at a Minnesota United game, uh, making out with one of the female communications staffers, both of whom are married with children. Great job, everyone. And not just that, but Rosas apparently was also a ginormous jerk inside the front office and had a terrible workplace environment. Apparently Rosas was also terrible when it came to dealing with other agents, dealing with other GMs, dealing just around the league. He had a terrible reputation as the headpiece of the Minnesota Timberwolves, so he was probably fired. And the way he was fired came out before all this information. Everybody's like, what? And now to find out all this information that Gerson Rosas is a scumbag, um, it helps a little bit. But also, Glenn Taylor was the one who put him in place. They were the one. They whiffed on this. They whiffed on this like the Wolves whiff on every single hire. And no matter how good Edwards is, no matter how good Ant is, no matter how good D'Lo can be, no matter how good Chris Finch can be, the Minnesota Timberwolves cannot improve as a franchise until Glenn Taylor walks out of the building and his key access is denied. Until he is gone, the Timberwolves are not going to improve as a franchise. 
The Minnesota Timberwolves, since they began, have been a poverty franchise, and they would be a poverty franchise the entire run of their existence had it not been for Kevin Garnett. Oh, that's right. We can't acknowledge Kevin Garnett, because the owner, Glenn Taylor, oh, Kevin Garnett was mean to him. Oh, no, we can't retire his number. I'm sorry. Glenn Taylor, you are the worst owner in Minnesota sports. You are the worst NBA owner. And just on top of that, the culture that you've allowed to run through, I mean, I can't pay attention much post-KG when you look at the when you look at the Kurt Rambuses and all that kind of stuff, but Thibodeau, terrible, terrible workplace environment. To Rosas, another terrible workplace environment. You have let this fester to become one of the worst places to be in the NBA. It's a miracle that Carl Anthony Towns isn't demanding a trade today. It is ridiculous. You have nobody but yourself to blame, Glenn Taylor, and the Wolves will not get better until you leave. Oh, and that's right. They had their media day press conference today. This is just turning into a Wolves rant, by the way. I don't have any notes written down for the Timberwolves. I'm just ranting here. Uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves had their media day today, and Glenn Taylor was unveiling Alex Rodriguez and Mark Laurie, the team's new owners, and said, oh yeah, by the way, you're not allowed to talk about Gerson Rosas. You're not allowed to ask about Ben Simmons. And uh, you're not allowed to ask about uh, uh, questions on new ownership, like uh, are they immediately going to want a new arena? Because let's be honest... They're going to want a new arena. The Target Center just won't fly for them. They're going to want to build one probably out towards like U.S. Bank or something. I don't know. I don't really. I don't really know. But we all know it's coming. New owners want new arena. They want to raise the value of their franchise. Um, but Glenn Taylor has just been a joke of an owner. Let Mark Lori pick the hire. Alex Rodriguez is kind of the face of the ownership group, but he's just kind of investing. He's not sole in this. He's just kind of the face. Mark Laurie is the guy making the decisions. Let Mark Laurie run this franchise. The best thing, the best thing, out of all those things Glenn Taylor said in uh, the press conference or kind of alluded to to the media, the biggest thing was this. He said, well, I need to be around with this transition. I need to be around for a couple more years because Laurie and Rodriguez don't take control until 2023. I need to be here because he's seen that NBA franchises that go through ownership transitions, that sometimes they fall onto hard times. And the Minnesota Timberwolves, God forbid they fall on hard times. I mean, come on, guys. This is a historic, prestigious franchise that has shown nothing but a model of consistency and improvement and just forward thinking and just a great place to play basketball. I mean, guys, Glenn Taylor is a legacy to protect here. He can't let the team fall on hard times. I... His incompetence as an NBA owner is astounding because I heard he's a really good businessman with running the Star Tribune. I heard he's really good at running all these other things. And I think the the best thing, I'll give him credit here while I've ripped on him for the last five minutes. He kept the Timberwolves in Minnesota and he was, and according to him, he said that the biggest thing is he wanted to make sure he kept the Wolves in Minnesota when he sold the team. I believe him. I don't know if he'll follow through on it, because I also believe him when he say he wants to build a winning championship team in Minnesota. It's just, can he actually do it? But Glenn Taylor wants to keep the Wolves in Minnesota. I'll at least give him that. But at the same time, the dude needs to go. You can still have your key card. You can still come in, and you can still sit courtside and go in the owner's boxes and all that kind of stuff. But honestly, just go. Dude, your time is up. It's been a failure. Go. Let Lori get a chance at this. And if not, the Seattle Supersonics 2 are going to be very fun. So, 
There is the Minnesota Sports Podcast for today, everybody. Thanks for joining. We're going to uh, have more stuff coming up. We're going to try and post more regularly. And with that, we just hope that you guys engage with the content that we're trying to put out here. Very excited about the next chapter of the podcast here. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.